0: Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats. In an ongoing cyber war, it's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Now don't forget to
1: hit like, subscribe, comment, share and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Man artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity. <laughs> now, today that's one thing I learned here from the Defcon uh, conference. Welcome to Cybersecurity America. Today's episode I'm going to have a friend of mine Pat Joyce on the line. Say hi Pat.
2: Hey everybody
1: and Pat is someone who's got over 20 years of cyber experience. He's been an enterprise security consultant, security program leader, and a security product development leader at Accenture. And then Booz Allen and then currently at Deep Seas. Uh really in just a minute he's going to give us the Deep Seas threat intelligence report, a few things he's going to want to jump in that everybody wants to have on their radar, and then we'll go into some other things. This week, DEF CON, DEF CON32, this was a, a big conference right after Black Hat. A couple of things that I noticed, this was my real first time going to uh, DEF CON here. Going to Black Hat every, just about every year for the last 10 years, it seems. Uh, missing a few here and there. RSA, that was mainly the conference I, conferences I had to go to for consulting. You're meeting business partners on the sideline, you're meeting customers on the sideline, and so forth. And DEF CON, I just never had the chance to get to. And completely different vibe, completely different environment. You had different villages, for instance. They had the ICS village. You had an automotive village where they actually had parts of the car pulled apart. So you could try and hack the car steering. They had a Tesla contest where it's hacked the Tesla uh, machine. And it had certain parameters that you can use. If you hacked the Tesla successful, I think you got the Tesla or or something to that effect. They had many different uh, capture-the-flags that were going on, lots of different scenarios. They had a wall of sheep. So the wall of sheep, so everyone who's been compromised while at the DEF CON conference had their name, their user password, and the URL of the bank account that they compromised. It gets so bad, everyone was nervous just bringing their machines in and making sure their credit cards had RFID filters on it. One of the things I get chatter from my guys, I had to run it through our threat intelligence team, is that people were reporting that we're getting hit with Bluetooth zero-day attacks on their phone and wanting everybody to turn off their Bluetooth. And I think it started, too, with uh, a lot of people hitting airdrops, unsolicited malicious airdrops. And so it's like going to China and Russia at the same time, going to the DEF CON conferences is one thing I noticed. <laughs> Different subculture, too. Not a single person had a collar on. And I'm talking about thousands of people. When I went to the registration, Pat, the line, I went with Louise. And Louise, him and I were going in get line. I had to go meet someone at Black Hat. So I only have 30 minutes to get my pass. I didn't know how serious people at DEF CON took getting their pass. because a- It's not like that at RSA and Black Hat. That's just a task to go get your pass. No, it's a right of privilege. They were staying in line the whole night. Like it was a rock star thing. And I was going... Wait a minute, why is everybody staying in line? They want to get the number one DEF CON pass or something to that fact. But I go to check in and uh, yeah, the line to tell you is at least 500, like a, a quarter mile long. It wraps around. That's how long it is. And it was all cash. You had to pay. I was
2: gonna, yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah, I know for a while it was it was all cash. It was supposed
1: yeah, to be $399. It ended up being $440 a person. So huh. all cash. And of course, they had the SRT SWAT team there because you're talking about a couple million dollars in cash uh, from the attendances there. Even some of the some of the presentations sold out. You can't get into it. There was huge lines. Even the merchandise booth sold out. Couldn't get and and there was just a big line. And people would arbitrarily stand in lines for certain things. One thing I love is it had this like armament. They had the board up there and all the cyber weapons you can buy, and it looked like Mogadishu, right? And it had one of them, one of them was like a Chameleon Ultra, and it was some kind of a wireless emulator. So you can emulate low frequency uh, fobs for doors or for clickers or garage door openers and so forth. So you can actually, almost like HPing, how HPing was a packet crafter, and you could create TCP mm-hmm. packets and test out IDS sensors and so forth. So I think it's pretty similar to that, except it will emulate and use different spectrums, $250. And they were like sold out. People were buying these things. So it was it was a hell of an experience, DEF CON. I really learned a lot. And one of the things I learned about it, uh, wasn't like uh, I went, to some, went into one of the ses- sessions and go, oh, hey, yeah, that was great, that show code analysis. Because I saw mm-hmm. a one topic on uh, show code analysis that was really good. It, it was nice. But I, I noticed this a five-layer conference sandwich, so to speak. You have your B-sides and your tech conferences, right? And those get you some insight that teaches you how to configure routers and switches, how to run Kali Linux, how to do some basic stuff. But then you go to SANS and SANS is where you really get hardcore cybersecurity training, right? This is the GCIH, yeah. the WIN and so forth. Yeah. And then it's Black Hat and RSA. And Black Hat and RSA, I feel are more of the business side of cybersecurity. And how do you put a governance program together? How do you do this? And uh It's, it's like leadership stuff. training at best, yeah. Yeah, yeah. leadership training. Now, on the floor at Black Hat, uh, Sentinel One, their, their booths were just slammed. They had people they were presenting to the whole time. I, I saw Carbon Black when they were going over their portal, their new portal design, and, and so forth. There was a lot of good traction there, but it was always people looking for solutions. Versus DEF CON, it was actually people that were doing things and writing code and breaking. It was almost as if Black Hat was the conference for the people who go to DEF CON that actually make it work. In the, in the first week
2: yeah people are looking for solutions at black Hat, and people are creating problems at defcon is that how it is pretty much
1: <laughs> and uh, i thought it was great because they had the uh, aerospace area too and they had uh some of the processing systems they even had satellite hacking where they had all the components and what happens uh when you're hacking satellites and I mean, it was interesting it's
2: pretty neat it's pretty neat
1: yeah, one of the things I saw is I saw this thing. It says game changing advances in windows showcode analysis. It's by this Dr. Bramville Brazing Brezendine and this guy, Max Kirsten. And it was quite interesting. Some of the tools and Ghidra and stuff that came from NSA and what they're doing with some other tools in order to be able to say see dynamically changing or um polymorphic shellcode. Uh, when it's executed. So I thought it was really interesting. It's not something you can have for a podcast that people don't understand what shellcode is in in many ways or what polymorphic means, but I thought it was a real good track. They had another one that I wanted to see uh, one of these presentations. I didn't didn't get a chance to see it. It was sold out, but it was Malware by Design. It says, Abusing Legacy, Microsoft Transports and Sessions Architecture. And I thought that was an interesting one because we're seeing that now. I'm seeing where you have legacy protocols like POP3 and IMAP4, and they migrated it to Azure because they had to. They were moving some legacy systems over, and it needed to support it. That's exactly what they were getting pumped with. They were doing password stuffing off of Af- ActiveSync. Some of those legacy protocols don't support MFA. It's one way to brute force it and, and do a bunch of password stuffing. So I thought that was, it was, overall, it was really good. I thought there would be a lot more on AI, and there okay, wasn't. They had an AI village. Uh, and they had some stuff, but it was still uh, getting into the actual code of, of some of the cars and, and trying to work that. Or they had a city plant and it was like hack the city and it had transportation hub and it had some trains. And so it was interesting. It may, it's what you would think cybersecurity conference would be, not like some of the others more commercialized. You know? Yeah. Yeah
2: was there one presentation you mentioned some of them were, were sold out but was there one presentation or any one event that everybody was really chatting about
1: no i don't i don't think there was one that everybody was chatting about not that i heard there was just so many there it was hard to catch everything i think if yeah. one person's experience at defcon is com- completely different than another person's even when you try as a team and say, okay, I'm going to the IAT Village. We had the chill section, for instance, that was interesting. I never went to a conference where they just had an area where there's a band and they're playing retro music, and the lights are down, and there's drinks and everything. And that chill area was a pretty good area, but that that was an area to, to converse in and so forth. But that, yeah, it was really interesting.
2: I think one thing that I think is pretty neat about DefCon is how long it's been around. Like I have friends that are now going with their kids. Their kids are either there were some kids there. teenagers or early college, and they're mm-hmm. entering you know, capture the flag events with their moms or dads. That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat that you can it's already such a niche culture and being able to share that with your kid, that, that's cool. I like that.
1: Oh yeah. And it's super like puzzles, escape the room type puzzles. And that's why everybody gravitates towards it. I'm seeing yeah. some of these kids like on each of the tables at that chill out room was this little electronic tower and it had mechanisms in it, it had a computer board in it and it had a Wi-Fi interface and and so forth. It was just like this tower of tech terror mm-hmm. and they communicated in some way. And so they were doing, doing wireless packet captures. And, and I'd see these two guys just getting really excited about the screen. And I go over there and go, Hey, so what'd y'all find? He goes, I think, all the slave nodes are synchronized using this key. And I think if I change this key, they're all synchronized to this master. And so now he's changing the master-slave configuration on how all these nodes work. That's exactly what all those kind of games were designed for, is to have people doing that and, and attempting to do things. And that's why it was scary just to have your Wi-Fi or anything turned off. I had everything off. It was just, yeah. it, was, it was too, too nerve wracking there. But yeah, a lot of those different sessions that were there. I think the tool I was talking about earlier was Prox Grind. Chameleon Ultra, and it's an mm. NFC and RFID emulator. And it's supposed to open open fob access points. So I'm real curious. I might just go buy that. It was like two hundred thirty dollars, but um, just trying to attempt to open up car doors or, or different things with these electronic fobs and whatnot. That would be pretty cool.
2: Huh? I that that sounds pretty neat. I I went to I used to go to a conference in New York City called Hope. It was similar. It was a hacker conference. Hackers on Planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And they had a little village where you could buy devices. And one year, uh, they were selling a device called TV Be Gone. It was actually a pretty popular device. It, it had one feature, a button. You would hit the button, and it would shut off any TV within range of where you're standing. So this was in New York City. Uh, that night, I went out with a couple friends, and I noticed how many people bought that device. Because every time I'd be in a bar or a club, all the TVs would go out. I'd see guys running around trying to turn the TVs back on. It was just a night of mischief. Now you can open cars <laughs> in garages. So. Well, I,
1: I, I think it'd be great just to be able to set off all the alarms, have 10 cars in a row, and just be able to set them all off and have them go crazy. Oh, and you, you just pretend like you got really mad one night. I know, I said it! And then hit the button and the, all, all the cars go <laughs> off. It would be like, holy crap, what is this dude? And yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I thought it was fascinating, but it was almost too much to take in there when you go into these different sessions. It's okay, how did y'all sign up for that one? Okay, the U.S. cyber team was there too as well. Wow. It's like, how do you get involved in some of them? And I think they were talking about they plan DEF CON the day after DEF CON. The day after the DEF CON conference, they start the next one. And it's Gee. planning and who's doing what and where that it was It was interesting to see how much they took into that. They they really loved buying. Everybody had these little electronic devices that they would make themselves. One would look like a, I don't know, a star with lights on it. And people would go, hey, that looks really cool. And they'd buy it. And they're they're like walking around like Mr. T did with these big uh, gold chains. Yeah, and the little hacker badges and stuff like that. I took advantage of it, man. I took my uh, podcast cards and I bought, it was a thing, of 300 cards I had printed. So 300 of these cards, and my voice is sore and everything. I, I literally introduced myself to about 260 people and passed that card. 40 of them I put on tables and stuff like that. But do they
2: have, they don't have a booth section, do they?
1: See, or they a have a small market, vendor so. section yeah. that is just one small little room and four or five vendors, really small. Yeah. There's not like black hat where there's Microsoft, there is no Microsoft sign. No There's yeah. none of that. Not a
2: tra- it's not a trade show. It's a, it's a hacker.
1: Community. And it was 30,000 freaking people there who See. all paid cash of five, almost $500, $440 yeah. in cash. Even some of the food there was all cash. And yeah, it was interesting. Wow. Man, what is going on in the world of threat intelligence and threats that are out there? It's been a busy week here. Nothing groundbreaking that broke here at Black Hat or DEF CON, but what's your threat intel team tracking over there right now?
2: There's always lots of things going on. We talk about ransomware a lot, so I, I thought today I wouldn't talk about ransomware, but actually discuss some things that are going on with Microsoft. Interestingly, last month, there was a Chinese threat actor that uh, gained access to something like two dozen email accounts from U.S. government agencies, like a very targeted attack. And this- So they
1: harvested thousands of addresses.
2: It was, yeah. And it was, they exploited a vulnerability. It was a zero day style vulnerability attack to gain access and- It it went unnoticed for about a month, got disclosed, but it was classic business email compromise. These accounts got taken over and then you had actors masquerading as legitimate users and you've got an insider risk issue. So not only are you losing data, but they eventually noticed behavioral changes in the senders and that's how they started to detect this. So fast forward a month, beginning of August... And a Russian-backed actor group has been using Microsoft Teams to pose as Microsoft tech support. They were compromising small organizations, getting access to their O365 accounts, changing the domain name to look like something somewhat legitimate, and reaching out to other organizations posing as Microsoft tech support. And manipulating people into sharing their multi-factor token and again, then gaining access and being able to pose as an insider. So I've been thinking a lot about just the this whole insider risk challenge. We spent a lot of time focusing on the external attack, but what do you do when there was an attack that wasn't driven by malware? It's totally social engineering. They log in with expected credentials and now they're posing as member of your team and yeah. um, and we're all virtual now. It's a very different, it's a different type of risk. It's a different type of threat. And that's why we have a whole area of our industry focused on insider risk and insider threat. But you know, it was
1: just- interesting. I had uh, Chris Lerman from Safeguard Cyber on, and he deals with insider threat solutions. And what they do, they have an interesting approach. They know you may use Slack and What's uh, WhatsApp and, and all these other applications that you don't have good monitoring on. But they mm-hmm. can do monitoring and those things. They plug into the APIs behind the scenes. So they don't have to have a desktop agent and you have any of this stuff. There's certain roles within each of those messaging platforms that allow you to do scanning for security behavioral things. So not, it's my understanding, it's not you got a message from this person, so that's spying. But it's looking through anom- anomalous type behavior through all of a sudden you're sending a lot of data out of WhatsApp and all of a sudden there's malicious URLs that are coming in through Slack or something to that effect. So I think what you're saying is really hard to see all that insider activity and that behavior because of just all the technology that allows seamless communications.
2: Yeah, you really need behavioral analytics. You need UEBA. You need to train your users. So they're hardened against some of these social engineering attacks, but it's, you know, it's going beyond ttps you really get to approach this challenge differently and it's really relevant so a lot of our customers are talking to us about data analytics and how we can help them focus on that to use a little bit of a cliche at this point the unknown how do you detect that unknown threat especially when it's could be uh, on the inside I and mean, it gets a lot harder
1: i think you're explaining how uh, There's two types of threat intelligence right you have the tactical type of threat intelligence which is IOC based, so it's hashes, it's files, it's you've had indicators of compromise where it's some type of network artifact of some source, URL, domain, IP, hash, that kind of stuff. And you want to put that in tool sets and push that as close as you can in order to detect some of these known attacks, but that the IOC's value is very limited, it gets refreshed a lot. So but can you just tell us what's the difference a, between the tactical and I think the second kind is more strategic where you're doing yeah, know so it's pros and cons of each.
2: Yeah. Strategic Intel is keep keeping you uh, abreast of the campaigns, the themes, um, the the major events that are happening, and, and it helps you get a better understanding of the the really the top-down risks that that you should be considering as as an enterprise or as an organization. Whereas, yeah, as you mentioned, you've got technical intel, which is very focused on. Those identifiers, whether it's a a behavioral identifier or an indicator, and those technical intelligence artifacts are, as you said, used for frontline detection. Where strategy, you're really building your campaigns, your programs, Your it's informing your risk strategy, so you Mm -hmm. can determine where you invest your resources, right? What actors are targeting my industry? Like, who's thinking about me? What do I have that would be attractive to an external attacker, whether it's intellectual property or just the opportunity to disrupt my operations because maybe I serve a critical role. Maybe I'm a business partner just to a high value target. So strategic intel can really help you get a better understanding of what the actors are up to and how they might approach um, attacking your organization.
1: So I think also it gives you a great benefit. So anyway, it's like we had, you have 450 customers around the world, right? You have, that's a lot. A lot of managed detection and response. You get a good idea of what's working for these customers, what's not. You were telling me one time about where we do some testing, where we have, let's say there's the top 10 TTPs for ransomware, and then you're able to run that on a host and see how you would perform. How does your EDR catch that? Does it send logs back? That kind of stuff. So, what kind of first of all, won't you tell me a little bit about Deep Seas? Where, where do you come from? Where do we start off? What's the genesis? What's our philosophy? And then what are some of those core services? And how are we taking the fight to the bad guy every day? So
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. So Deep Seas, we are, as we like to say, we're a new brand, but we're absolutely not a new organization or new to the cyber defense space. We we founded our company under the name of Deep Seas just this past January. So we've been operating under Deep Seas for less than a year. um, But we launched our our organization um, when we combined um, two companies. So I I actually came in from uh, a group within Booz Allen Hamilton's commercial uh, consulting and managed services practice. Um, I was part of our, our MDR business. And we actually, as, as our MDR business, we separated from Booz Allen right around last January, and we combined with a, a US-based mid-market MSP called Security on Demand. Between the two of us, we, we have over 350 customers, or we did in January. Now we're up to about 450. And we were focused on Really, our core is managed detection and response and focused on really providing true defense to to private and public organizations.
1: And just um, but, real quick, the, the managed detection and response, is that you're doing tier one, tier two response? And what exactly is managed detection and response?
2: Yeah. Managed detection and response is, is a service where we focus on identifying active threats in a client's technical environments, and, and we focus on really all attack surfaces, so whether that's IT, operational technology, like a manufacturing environment, or more, less traditional environments, cloud environments. And step one is focusing on achieving visibility and detecting threats. But then step two is actually responding. So we'll intervene, we'll contain a threat, we'll disrupt the activity and then we'll work with our customers to achieve recovery if that's needed. But MDR was a little bit of a reaction to or a reaction against the traditional MSSP model of about 10 years ago plus, where you could hire an outsource provider that would do detection, mm. but they would just inform you that something bad is happening and, and they would really leave it to you, the customer, to to respond or figure out how to respond. So we're we're a very active partner with our customers, and we're we're absolutely in the fight. We're really leading the fight. And, and, and this is when that. you
1: you say you can you do containment. So not just you see the alerts, the so level one, level two alerts, but when you do you correlate that on the back, and then when you do find like it's a true positive, you can take action and actually contain host pro- proactively at two, three in the morning. Is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah. So containment is really taking. Let's say you've got a machine. That has a uh, you know piece of malware on it or or something. Some maybe someone externally gained access to that machine that that shouldn't. We'll take that machine off the network and, and completely isolate it. We can go in and remove a file. We can deny a user. We can take make a block at a network perimeter so that certain network traffic will no longer happen. Right. And and ultimately, we're looking across multiple attack surfaces. So we're looking at organizations endpoints their their email network cloud and pulling the threads together so that we really understand uh, the full scope of a potential attack and then can take action in the in the right ways
1: yeah you're telling me too when log4shell came out and log4j we had detections and ids sensors within an hour i think of those attacks so having that network effect of pushing analytics out to our sensor fleet and being able to detect it. I thought that was a crowning moment where uh, our customers didn't even know what log4j was when it first hit. They had no idea what it was. And then we already had detections and showing that we had vulnerable systems. We had uh, detections on scans that were occurring proactively and so forth.
2: Yeah, that's the advantage of when you have a partner <clears throat> who is like deep seas, who's monitoring hundreds of separate organizations at once, we're able to achieve what I consider true threat intelligence sharing. Every, everybody in our in- industry has been trying to get to towards you know, really productive threat intel sharing, but typically the challenge with sharing intelligence, if I'm organization A and you're organization wow. B and I send you intel, it may be helpful to you, but you're I'm really giving you my field notes and you don't have any of the context that I had when I was writing them down. So you're doing your best to recreate the intel that I gave you in your environment. It can be effective to a point, but it's never going to be effective as being the person, being the team who sees threat happening in environment A and can immediately pivot into environments B through Z and push that intel and and have a true understanding of what's happening. Given just the scope of one our team and, and the, the capabilities and the backgrounds of the people we have, and in our visibility across all these organizations, we are able to very quickly identify new intel, new threats, and effectively inoculate all of our customers very quickly. So we've seen you mentioned Log4Shell. We were we were seeing indications of you know external parties trying to probe, scan, and exploit that vulnerability very early on. And we were helping all of our customers. Again, like you mentioned before, a lot of them even knew what it was. And we had similar stories when the Kaseya platform got infiltrated with ransomware, where this was a a piece of technology that had access into lots of different organizations because it's used by managed service providers. And, And we, again, in that scenario, We're able to to, um, identify indicators and inoculate our our entire customer fleet before any of them were impacted. And and generally, when these major events happen, we set up a a bit of a command center style motion where we're keeping all of our customers informed as their bosses are calling them because they're hearing about these things on 60 Minutes and elsewhere. Our customers are already briefed. They, They know what's going on. They know that we've already taking care of the or are actively taking care of the detection and response and defense these breaking threats so it's it's really cool to see it in action when our, you
1: know. and I remember we were you were doing stuff like transformations for companies like you could have a merger acquisition one has crowdstrike yeah. the other one has carbon black and just our platform allows us to operate a security operations type function tier one tier two on environments that are not heterogeneous. They're not homogeneous. They're heterogeneous. They're different in many cases. You don't want to prefer that because the difficulties operating in different APIs and different interfaces have to be written and so forth. But be able to handle some of that to allow uh, transformations. And then uh, I know you have prepare, prevent, and defend, right? Those different columns. But what are some of the other services that you have that complement MDR? I know you have a consultant team now. So we have uh, vCISO, penetration testing. So what, what are the other services and capabilities that Deep Seas now brings you offer?
2: Yeah. We so we've organized our business against three practice areas that that we call prepare, prevent, and protect. Our our prepare practice area is all about strategy and advisory. So helping organizations build a, a security strategy, build a security plan, and then execute upon that plan over time. We one of the services we offer through kind of the flagship offering under our strategy service is a virtual CISO. So you can actually get an access to an experienced enterprise or or mid-market chief information security officer who is typically quite technical because we run a pretty technical program. And that person will partner with uh, the business or maybe partner with an in-place CISO and really operate as a a, mm-hmm. a coach, a player coach model. Or and, MSPs, right? Yeah. Yeah. The MSPs. And we'll build out, we start with an assessment. We'll identify the top projects that will provide the the best ROI from a security uplift perspective. And then we just systematically work through executing the projects. Oftentimes we might start with Maybe projects that that will get an organization ready to be insured, just getting path to cyber insurability, or yeah. perhaps we'll focus on a hardening campaign. If after the assessment, we just see that there's an opportunity to really strengthen the the attack surface.
1: So uh, what insurance yeah. ability that they were looking for? They're looking for a program when driving strategy, I think, for the organization, some testing or control validation that what you're saying in these audit reports are actually Factual, they test out like that. What, what else do they, you think insurance look for insurability?
2: Yeah. So, insuring uh, a lot of the cyber insurance providers, they have a list of there's about 12 different capabilities that they look for as a minimum. And they include things like having multi factor authentication. On a one, yeah. right? Having EDR, endpoint detection and response technology is now. Required by most cyber insurers not only mm. need to have this technology, but you need to have a, a, some capability to monitor. To and manage it. Yeah. yeah, to the threats that it identifies. O- other things include just collection of logs and the ability to monitor those logs. Yeah, patch management, backups is very important. Mm. You know, secure, resilient, resilient backups, user awareness training. So they're arguably fundamental capabilities, but they also provide the most ROI, again, and and the the most bang for your buck from a risk reduction perspective. That's why the insurers want to know that you at least have these core capabilities in place before they put...
1: And I I think you and I being practitioners, knowing that there's a lot of stuff you can do, a lot of stuff you can do. And you don't need some fancy tool for 200K a year. And then the maintenance contract, it it seems like some people have been programmed that says that you fix your problems with some big fancy tool or system that's able to spit out some report. And it's rarely that's the answer. Sometimes it may bring you to the point or a platform where, where you're able to get to another level that you're supposed to. But nine times out of 10, I'm seeing where we have failed tool implementations, that it's some tool that does something and nobody uses it anymore. Or here's this tool that simulates breaches over here, but nobody uses it anymore. And it's just it just seems to be a waste of tools. They're throwing tools as a problem rather than I just thought if you really had smart people and you gave them time to do things like to really put a patch management program in and do it right, have a hardening program and actually implement it and and scan for non-compliance of hardening guidelines in different operating systems. Instead, they have a hardening guideline standard that just thinks this is a policy-based program. They just create a policy so that hopefully some admin, when he builds the next server, will read it before he builds it. And then I say, oh, we have a hardening guideline, but nobody's using it, nobody tests for it, the audit functions aren't there, it really does not exist. And then people want to know, why do things fail in, in an intrusion? And it's not the tool, it's what you do.
2: Yeah, it's one of the big challenges that organizations have is consistently executing the process of cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is an ongoing process where you need to continuously identify risks, assess assets, identify weaknesses in your ability to protect those assets and then address those weaknesses. It's a, it's this mm-hmm. ongoing cycle. And we love to talk about the next platform that has AI that's going to protect us from the advanced persistent threat. But oftentimes, threats don't need to be that advanced or persistent. And, and you really didn't need AI or some new advanced tech. You needed to harden your systems or apply the latest patch that got released by Microsoft last yeah. Tuesday, etc. But that is hard. At scale, it's hard. It's hard to be consistent, to protect all things in a comprehensive way. And that is why, again, preparation and strategy and putting in the hard work to get the basics in place and, and get beyond the basics, it's important. So then again, that's where we start. So with We don't want to simply be in a position when we're helping a customer of, playing whack-a-mole, identifying the threats and responding to them when we know we can also be helping with some of that root cause. We start with strategy and then our next practice area is focused on prevention and our prevent services primarily contain what we call control validation services. So we have a a suite of services that we tie together and, and build a program for our customers where we're, we we use different methods to identify weaknesses in their environments. So technical weaknesses that we identify through what, what's called penetration testing, effectively ethical hacking, right? So we'll hack customer's network, we'll hack their web applications. And we try to do that on a regular basis, but in many organizations may hire a pen tester or a pen test team and have an, an annual pen test, which is great. You get a snapshot once a year, of your weaknesses, Uh, but we try to go beyond that by building programs where we're bringing in different types of tests through a package so we're continuously testing for new weaknesses. You mentioned um, our our breach attack simulation solution earlier, you referenced it, where we have a, a very lightweight test where we can go in to an environment we can drop a, a small agent on a machine and we can validate whether or not the tools that are deployed, all those expensive security tools that, that a customer bought, whether or not they're actually doing their jobs. And we can just very quickly, as an example, simulate the the 10 most common ransomware strains that we've been observing across all of our customers and, and beyond. And it's a real high impact test that allows us to figure out if the tools are, are configured the way they should be, if there's any gaps between the tools because most organizations as you mentioned they don't have all one one kit that's totally integrated and unified we typically have environments with multiple products from multiple vendors and we do our best to integrate them but sometimes the margins between tool A and tool B is where a lot of the risk lives and in the largest organizations if you go to the biggest organization in the world the way they solve this problem tools rationalization is they build this they'll build platforms they'll build glue they'll have developers and they'll integrate everything and they'll have their own security asset inventory that's talking to the different tools and applying analytics and really fusing all these different capabilities together but as you step outside of the the 1% of most most well-funded security programs it's not always easy to do that on your own. We've actually got a team of folks that have worked in the largest enterprises, that have worked in large consultancies, at you know Fortune one hundred companies, and we've built a platform that we bring to our customers that help rationalize the tools, that help bring all the all the different stakeholders together in one platform, so we can identify and manage risk, we can detect and respond to threats, and we can identify weaknesses and address those weaknesses through through attack service management.
1: And what I like about that solution here is that some of the real world scenarios we had where we're monitoring 24 by seven, our current customers environment, but mm-hmm. they have their infrastructure written poorly in which some of the events are coming from that EDR platform. They may be landing in a Splunk repository and then creating notables from there. And then we were picking up the notables because we didn't support that EDR product, but we we're picking up the notables. And, of course, there was something written in the analytics wrong where a whole subset of hosts, none of the alerts were making it to the 24 by 7 MDR service. So you can see we're just an infrastructure breakdown. We've had ingestors, cloud ingestors, just back up and start dropping logs for some reason. And then we find out our data is a month old or three months old It's some of these client environments. And I think what we wanted is just to be able to use, you you were saying earlier, I think breach attack simulation has an agent, but I think it's a shim. It's just an implant, right? It's not really a a true agent, but it's an implant. And you put that on that gold image and you execute uh, some of these ransomware. And I think what we're looking for is activity A, if it runs, the activity should be logged somewhere, should be recorded. That's the first thing. If you don't see it, that event is not going to be recorded. Then we're never going to be able to detect that. So you need to increase visibility to at least be able to have a log. The next one is that did it did it make it all the way to the sim or to your next piece of infrastructure? Did it make it to your twenty four by seven? Did they see it and disposition it? And just seeing the walking through the whole step of that and really concentrating on the blue team side of this because. We have so many threats that come after us, and some of these things are looking like they're living off the land attacks. Very hard to distinguish between that and normal uh, user activity, especially they're using standard Windows binaries. It's not like they downloaded some malicious content uh, from the internet. So it gets just really challenging. And I think the, you talked about, that breach attack at least gives some understanding what's being caught, what's not. And we've seen the same product act differently based on its configuration. So. You may have CrowdStrike configured in one way somewhere and it just behaved differently in some of the tasks. Configuration means a lot. but uh, Configuration
2: management is so important. And Mm -hmm. it's one of these things that we just don't talk about enough. We focus on the types of tools you have to have. Mm -hmm. And and then too often organizations just plug them in, don't configure them right, and move on. And, And we don't find out until... The bad day happens when a threat actor shows up or system goes down or a backup doesn't work because we didn't test. We didn't right. we didn't validate that things were set up correctly. So that that whole validation process is is critical. Um,
1: and I think you and I were talking about too is the the change in philosophy where I'm a firewall guy, right? That's network infrastructure, that's the way I came up. Cisco yeah. picks, checkpoint firewalls. That was my bailiwick for a long time. And then you just saw the trend, how they started moving firewall management over to the network team. And they viewed it just as another network device, another routing network device on there. And being CMP, being a network guy, I know the mindset was to make packets flow. That was it. Their job was not to stop traffic. It wasn't to prevent a certain protocol. Those network guys thought about one thing and one thing only, and that's keeping the data flowing. And a security guy's mentality is about locking it down, using it as a security device, not just a router. But every all, all, everything was going over to the network guys. Then we kept having misconfiguration. Uh, we kept having network teams saying, uh, I just add the the rule that you give me. That's it. They, they've moved into this change management. They're no longer security professional. They no longer look at, all right, let me put an ACL to filter these protocols because this isn't being used anymore. And let me filter this legacy one. I could do that at the perimeter. Those network guys don't even think like that, nor do they have the knowledge to know what to shut down. And then the idea of shutting something down goes against the whole mentality of a free and open, get the packets flowing. So you yeah. see where the companies are now shifting. They no longer want network companies to run their firewalls. They're shifting to the cybersecurity people, especially after Fortinet. If Fortinet had those zero-day vulnerabilities that got popped on their SSL VPN side of that, and I was involved in an incident on that one, and it was no one patched the firewall. The network team was fine if you told them to configure something, like add an IP address to a block list. They would do that. But to keep it upgraded and make sure the rules were there and just and get rid of old rules, and they did none of that kind of stuff. And so once again, another breach because the firewall wasn't managed by security people, it was by networks.
2: Yeah, you you need to be securing the control, not only administering the control. And mm-hmm. you do bring up a good point. You know, some of our customers or some of our colleagues are often surprised to hear that uh, Deep Seas as, as a pretty advanced you know cyber defense service provider and we really hire highly skilled folks and we focus on the most advanced services, the hardest services you that exist, right? To hardest things to build in-house. But we also do firewall management. And oftentimes I have colleagues come up and ask me, like, really? You guys are doing firewall management, but we've been pulled towards it for exactly reasons like you've described, like the these, the network teams just really aren't focused on the security aspects. They're just focused on keeping the packets moving, keeping service availability up. And also these devices have gotten a lot smarter. We talk about next gen and firewalls and unified defense platforms. And there's a lot more to it than just stateful kind of allow or block traffic. There's um, got IDS, we've got all kinds of different web proxy capabilities that are built into these systems. And if you're trying to get the full value of that expensive piece of hardware or virtualized hardware that you've put at your network perimeter, you want to have a team or a a practitioner who can, you know, leverage all of those in a meaningful way. And and then you start to move towards response and having a team that can adequately apply response actions in in an appropriate way to tools, including your network perimeter and your endpoints is really important. Yeah, we've seen more and more firewall work come our way, which is interesting because it, it used to be part of security. And as you mentioned, it left, it became more of a commoditized like IT and then it came management back. thing. And now it's all coming back. It's, it's all coming back. back.
1: And yeah. now, you and I talk about this too, being an MDR provider, you have three legs to the security detection quandary, right? So you have yeah. the EDR, that's the first. You have to be there on that edge. You have to be there with that operating system, is interfacing with other untrusted systems the potential for malicious code comes right there at that endpoint. So you need to have the endpoint and the EDR. We know that's number one. We also know that not everything has an EDR product installed on it. You have IoT devices, you have routers, you have switches, you have manufacturing systems, you have all these kinds of stuff that you can't put an EDR on. And it does need some network level monitoring and be able to see PCAPs and things that are going across. So no. network sensors, we have a you have a fleet of IDS network sensors. You want to tell us a little bit about the IDS sensors. What what is the
2: core? yeah? I, I, yeah. When you're deploying tools, telemetry technology, step one is gaining comprehensive visibility across whatever environment you're trying to protect. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned having an EDR agent on your endpoints and on your cloud workloads allow you to have visibility into those into those operating system-driven systems where you can put an agent. But then going beyond the endpoint, having a, a strong network IDS, network IPS system in place that can see all the traffic on the network, that can see the traffic from your IoT devices, your smart everything, your smart fridge, your smart machine, your printers, all these things that you can't always put an agent on, because maybe they just have a, a lightweight web server running on a little piece of hardware that's operating a thermostat. But those things get compromised all the time. So like or, a
1: LaserJet 4. I'm telling yeah. you, there was a LaserJet 4 yeah. was compromised 15 years ago. And my manager thought it was crazy. But I said, look, it's it's reaching out to our protocol and it's coming from the freaking printer. And yeah. yeah, from IoT.
2: Yeah, so we see, oftentimes what we see is some unknown web server that's been compromised. And it turns out it's it's an interface on some smart something, a smart appliance or some maybe some again, some like building control system device or something. And uh, yeah, so we we've you've know, very consistently are seeking to either bring in or integrate with network IDS in a customer's environment. We're looking at at least internet ingress egress points because that's where uh, these my systems are trying to beacon out or connect with their command module. And then also looking at gateways, key, key breakpoints inside of an enterprise network to identify lateral movement. It's also really important to have choke points at those areas of the network as well. Um,
1: yeah, and then the third leg of that's tools, you have EDR, you have the network detention, and then you have log management. So You have events that are occurring inside of applications. You're not going to see it, even if you pulled PCAP, yeah. full packet capture. You're not going to see these attacks are at the application level. From a logging perspective, I know earlier we were talking about managed services and and some of the other ones was email MDR. And I know you have uh, SIM MDR, but um, you want to tell us about uh, the logging analytics, email MDR, SIM MDR, and then analytics uh, capabilities? Because I know that's the third still or third leg to detection.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of machine data in in enterprise environments, right? Every every system creates some sort of log. Every security tool has a way to ex- export different types of alerting that you know maybe identifying some type of security relevant information. And we've got no shortage of data. No shortage of data in our industry and, and as as practitioners, we're drowning in data. The and and we have tools that have been assembled to help us rationalize that data. So there's a category of tooling called security information and event management, and, and that you've got products like Splunk or Microsoft Sentinel, IBM QRadar, There's there's many security information and event management platforms out there, and originally the, those platforms they started to emerge maybe 15 years ago plus. They were focused on providing two different types of capabilities. One, inf- security information management, and you can think about this as reporting uh, in a way. Like you're looking at trends, you're looking at you know really managing all that information, managing asset information, user information, and basically developing context around your environment. And then you had security event management, which is dealing with the real time alerting that's occurring. And identifying whether or not there's an active threat through really correlating and creating connections across all the different alerting mechanisms in your environments. And, and early security information event management tools often came with two different modules. They had a log management module and a correlation and alerting module. And that's really how the there used to be a product called ArcSight, which was like the as they used to say, the Cadillac of uh, security. It used
1: to be? It's gone? ArcSight?
2: Yeah, ArcSight's, ArcSight's still around, but not. it's absolutely not the leading.
1: It, it used to be the gold standard. It was like the Walmart. It used to be
2: the gold standard. Now it's it's rare to see, the, see that technology around. But we moved from this model where you had all these SIM tools had a log aggregator and a correlation machine, right? These were two mm-hmm. different functions. Those... The, those two technologies merged over time as you as these NoSQL and the, these new newly architected technologies like Splunk moved into the scene where Splunk, you know and, and tools like it offered this one one platform. Where you shove all your data and you can do everything. You can run your alerting, you can run your logging, you can run your reporting. Um, unfortunately, over time, these products became really expensive. And oftentimes now we see customers and, and programs where they've got one very expensive security information and event management style platform where they're sending lots of data, um, but they're not really getting the full return on investment because some of that data really shouldn't be there, first of all, because it's it has more of a reporting purpose, or maybe it's just it should be just stored and retained for the time when you need the context from the information that that you have in addition to the the real time alerting which is what the these security information and event management tools are really well tuned to do alert and correlate in meaningful ways so we've we've really been focused on helping our customers with what I would describe as data governance in this third leg of the stool and looking at all the different machine data that exists outside of the High fidelity endpoint data and the high fidelity network data, which we already talked about. Everything else, we what we like to do is ultimately, you know, have the right recipe for the right data sets and send them into systems that are going to provide the the best outcomes at, at the best cost because budgets are scarce. So we've been using uh, data lakes. We have our own data lake technology that allows us to to take lower fidelity data, put it in in lower cost storage, have it be available for batch analytics, look for trends over time. And that's typically applied to data that doesn't require real-time or doesn't have enough context to enable real-time alerting. And and then routing the higher fidelity data sets towards higher fidelity technologies within the data lake or or even breaking out of the data lake and using a sim to focus on the real-time alerting. Because the truth is not all data sets are created equal and they're not all used for the same outcomes. I I was talking to a customer uh, just earlier this week that had heavy compliance requirements and, and he was describing all the HIPAA reports that he has to run at the end of every month for his auditor. And he was explaining to me that he's using a very expensive SIM platform to, to okay. drop all, all, all the all their user logins are being recorded. and At the end of the month, they run a report for all the logins across all their systems and pull it out of the SIM. And they're pulling in hundreds of gigabytes of data just to run these types of reports. And it's just not a good use of resources. Did what are they
1: doing with the alerts?
2: they 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 were batching those identity alerts one of the primary use cases was just to get reporting for audit purposes they, they were also using that platform to detect like brute wow. force attacks and different types of ad- identity attacks but they were dropping a lot more data than was needed for just that real time alerting into that very expensive real time monitoring tool
1: so, so what I, we're, we're seeing is this philosophy of, of back in, in the days, it was just throw everything into the SIM and the SIM will figure it out. Like it magically would do it without any proper use cases. Yeah. We just say, hey, a Netscope's coming up on the network. Security operations, can y'all just come up with playbooks for this stuff or, or just ingest it with no real insight of, all right, what is this tool supposed to do? What activity does it do that's important for the SOC to know? Like when this goes off, this means what to us? There was yeah. always something that was failed about that. They never worked very well together.
2: Yeah, I think we focused a lot in our industry about building a better correlation platform, a better analytic platform, a faster search. You see all these different vendors arguing over who can search your data the fastest. But I think what we've neglected to focus on is the data integration pipeline, just as yeah. an industry. That's with Name your log collection platform, there's often challenges with getting the data in and routing it to the right places. And that's an area where we've actually invested heavily in having and bringing our customers a data pipeline where we ingest data, but we can send it to the right places where it needs to go.
1: And Pat, we're starting to run out of time. Any of the other areas that you think that y'all are really focused on? I know we're doing some real real good change in a couple of different areas, but what are the other services?
2: going beyond some of the more traditional environments where again we're building strategies identifying weaknesses and defending we've we've been able to build some pretty unique capabilities in the operational technology space as one example so we've got organizations that maybe have a manufacturing site or they may be doing oil refinery or anything that really lives outside of the traditional IT uh-huh. and you know, these environments typically have old technology that was never intended to be connected to the internet, connected to traditional TCP IP networks.
1: Blue-collar tech is what they call
2: it. Yeah, blue-collar tech, yeah. But suddenly it is. And it's ripe with vulnerabilities and security issues. And we've built a, a program around defending OT across each of our practice areas. And that's been gaining a lot of attention. And we've got a few really large environments that we're defending today. And Lots of kind of mid to small environments that we're building strategies for. So I think that's one area that we're seeing a lot of growth in. And it's really a little bit of a renaissance in this, as he's called the blue collar tech, the OT side of the house. I Um, think it's
1: different, too, is that most MDR companies don't have consultant teams. And so I guess the, the biggest thing is when we spun out of Booz Allen Hamilton, we carved out some of the best members. Best analytic engineers, best incident response. Pilot. That's one of our big specialties, incident response and do own retainers. We do we deliver partners too as well. But just having most MDR providers do alerting and that's it. They don't have a consultant team, couldn't do a transformation for you, couldn't do a hybrid where there's a, a staff augment model being supplemented by uh, managed detection and response. That's our hybrid deliveries. So they don't have the consultants that can go on ground and do that. Uh, but I think that's what kind of makes us unique.
2: Yeah, and that's why we've been using the term MDR Plus, kind of coined that term to describe like who we are and what we do, because we we really do go beyond just simply running right. detection and response on tools, but we're bringing end-to-end programs to our customers. We're building and enabling security programs. So when a customer joins, they, they really step into something that provides yeah. them with the, the full gamut.
1: And I think that the big thing is they learn is just the fractional nature of it. We're able to take very seasoned, very smart guys and fractionalize their time in which everybody's able to benefit. And you don't have one security engineer for one organization dedicated time. You're able to use that and have that benefit across yeah. across the enterprise. Just-in-time
2: just talent, I guess.
1: <laughs> Just-in-time talent. Well, Pat, I really appreciate you having on the show today and walking through a couple of these things, talking about what, what we saw at DEF CON. What you're seeing in the industry, I think, it's really powerful because you meet with a lot of customers, 400 plus of them. You understand what some of their feedback are. I I hear a lot of them don't want a service provider like a Verizon type thing where you just these are my minutes I consume. But they're looking for their strategic advice. Where do I go? What do I do? And need their kind of their handheld in this war we got going on. So, man, yeah. I appreciate you. Thanks for joining. I will be talking to you soon, Pat.
2: Thanks for having me on, Josh.
1: All right. Thanks, everybody. Y'all have a good day and stay secure. And don't forget to hit share, subscribe, and turn on those notifications. Have a good evening. Now don't forget to hit like, subscribe, comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.